wasn't bad for the first time <laughs> attempting that one. Please be seated. <clears throat> now, just out of curiosity, how many already knew pretty well the stories of the Good Samaritan and the Prodigal Son? Raised with them, probably, heard them in Sunday school. But talking about biblical texts amongst Unitarian Universalists is always risky because our backgrounds are so diverse, it really is not safe to assume that everyone recognizes biblical references. And it's not just us. More and more people in our Christian culture know the Bible only by hearsay through other people's retellings and interpretations of it. Those who do know the stories tend to be those who see the Bible, or at least their understanding of it, as inerrant and infallible, which doesn't leave a whole lot of room for discussion about their interpretations. And those who retell the stories in the loudest voices are rarely the ones whose interpretations match what modern scholars are sure that Jesus himself was trying to say. And it really would be a shame to hand the Bible, both the Jewish and Christian parts of it, over to those who use scripture as a weapon against those with whom they disagree, and I, for one, am not willing to do it, which is why every now and again we go back to the old books and have another look at them. So the Bible's part of our heritage. Our most basic beliefs, whether we identify here as Christian, Jewish, pagan, Buddhist, humanist, atheist, UU, or anything else, our most basic beliefs are part of the teachings of the rabbi of Nazareth, known to us as Jesus. And the most radical and most basic of his teachings are found in the parables of the Good Samaritan and the Prodigal Son. We don't have a whole lot that anyone can say for certain actually comes from Jesus. And what we do have is often buried under layers of doctrinally inspired editing. But the materials we do have, including these two parables, are generally regarded by scholars as authentic. And these two parables in particular are so regarded, in part at least, because they are so utterly outrageous. A little contextual analysis here. On the surface, they are both nice stories about compassion, kindness, forgiveness, acceptance. A traveler is rescued by a kindly and generous stranger, and everyone agrees that the Samaritan's a really good guy. A younger son pulls a typical cliche younger son stunt. He takes his trust funds, spends it all foolishly, goes home fearful of his welcome, and is received by his father, although not by his brother, with open arms. The Samaritan reminds us that everyone is our neighbor. The prodigal reminds us that God's love is inexhaustible. And both of these messages are indeed part of what Jesus was saying. They're not especially surprising to us because we've heard them before many times. But imagine now, if you will, being a member of the Judean society 2,000 years ago and hearing those stories told to you on a hillside or in a town square, listening to a traveling teacher who looks like he's been traveling for a while, who just wanders into your town and sits down and starts telling stories. 
Jesus does not identify the traveler on the road from Jerusalem to Jericho, but his listeners are going to assume it's someone like them. The Jericho Road in those days was about 20 miles of awful conditions, including the likelihood of robbery. The man is attacked, beaten, stripped, and left for dead. No clothes, no wallet, no driver's license, no way for anyone looking at him to know who or what he is, and he is unconscious, so he cannot call for help or give an accounting of himself. A priest walks by. Now, you've got to feel sorry for the priest because the priest doesn't know if this guy in the ditch is a fellow Jew or not, and that matters. He has to assume, however, that the man is not Jewish because the threat to the priest's ritual purity if he approaches a non-Jew is tremendous. And the consequences of approaching a dead non-Jew are even greater. He would become unclean. He would need to undergo a long ritual purification if he even approached the body of a member of his own community. But it would be much longer and a much more expensive process to restore his ritual purity if the man in the ditch were found to be a foreigner. Just getting close enough to try to find out if the man in the ditch is alive or dead, Gentile or Jew, is too risky. If the victim is not a live Jew, then the priest can no longer perform any of the ritual activities necessary for the well-being of his entire community. He loses his right to receive the sacrificial leftovers at the temple. He cannot collect offerings from the faithful, which means he can't do any of his work. And his whole family, all his servants as well, all become ritually unclean right beside him. They could all starve. So he's got a decision to make. Does he risk sacrificing the needs of the many, his family, his community, his servants, himself, for the sake of this one, who from the looks of him is probably dead already? Now at this point, Jesus' hearers are starting to get a little bit uncomfortable They have information, after all, that the priest does not have, that the victim is probably one of them, and he's still alive, but he won't be for long if he doesn't get some help. On the other hand, if the priest does not maintain ritual purity, that endangers their whole community, in part because one of the many apocalyptic beliefs widespread in Jesus' day was the belief that if the Jewish people could maintain God's laws including the complicated Levitican purity codes, for just three days, then the world would be ready for Messiah to arrive. And the priests especially had to be careful. So the listeners could understand the priest's dilemma. They didn't blame him for passing by. Next comes the Levite, not as important to the community as the priest, but still, just the, it's not just the priests who have to avoid contact with foreigners and the dead. That's in the rules for everybody. The Levite does not want to have to undergo a period of purification either, and he certainly doesn't want to be the one responsible for postponing the arrival of the Messiah. So he averts his eyes and he walks by as well. This is a little bit tougher for Jesus' hearers because they know that the burden on the Levite would be far less than that faced by the priest. And the hearers, most of them anyway, 
aren't really sure the people of Israel are capable of three days of perfect goodness anyway, so what difference would it really make? And finally, they know, or they think that they know, that the man in the ditch is someone they would regard as their neighbor, and he's still alive, but he's sinking fast. And they're all imagining themselves walking down that road, and they're all getting the message, which was that the priest and the Levite could have helped but didn't. So these listeners are all feeling smug and sure that they would have stopped and they would have helped that guy in the ditch because they were catching on to Jesus' point here. And then Jesus throws them the real curve. The next man down the Jericho road is a Samaritan. Now, the people of Judea regarded the Samaritans in much the same way you might expect, just for example, a radical political liberal to regard a devout Tea Party Republican, or a Tea Party Republican to regard any supporter of the Affordable Care Act. (laughs) Only about 178 times worse. You get the point. One ancient source comments that he who eats the bread of the Samaritans consumes the flesh of swine. And you would have a hard time getting any more insulting than that. Yet the Samaritans were not really Gentiles. They were a branch of the Jewish people who had blended into the pagan culture of Canaan and Samaria. Their faith was a combination of Jewish and Canaanite laws and beliefs, and they were bound by the same Jewish holiness codes that regulated the conduct of the priest and the Levite. That's important. The Samaritan was not exempt from the rules about avoiding dead or dying strangers. He had just as much reason, more reason really, because he was a foreigner on the Jericho Road, and it was not a high statistical probability that the guy in the ditch would also be a Samaritan, so he had more reason than either the priest or the Levite to risk himself for the sake of that beaten, unconscious man. But he did it anyway. He picked the man up, put him on his own beast, took him to an inn, took care of him, left the equivalent of two days' wages to cover any expenses the innkeeper might incur, and promised to stop on his way back to take care of any additional costs, opening himself up, by the way, to the possibility of the Judean equivalent of a lawsuit for defiling the injured Jew by touching him. It would be like Rush Limbaugh waking up to find after a heart attack that his life had been saved by a leftist-leaning, undocumented Mexican lesbian abortionist. (laughs) Gratitude is not necessarily the first response of the rescued self-righteous. And all this is pretty outrageous all by itself for Jesus' listeners because he's saying to them that God literally does not give a damn about religious rules. And religious ritual purity is unimportant. And God has no patience with anyone who thinks that obedience to God could ever be compatible with cruelty or malice or disdain or indifference toward others. The Samaritan knew as well as everyone else did what God's laws were supposed to be. What's important about the Samaritan wasn't so much his compassion, although that was certainly part of it, as it was his willingness to go ahead and give aid. 
to violate the rules of ritual purity without caring about God's opinion one way or another, he would do what was right. The Samaritan could have passed by like the others did, sighing over the sadness and the injustice of it all, but he didn't. Then Jesus asks his listeners who they thought had acted like a good neighbor. The obvious answer, of course, is the Samaritan. And that would be pretty hard in itself, having a Samaritan held up as an example of goodness, as someone who understood that his neighbor was anyone who needed his help, regardless of the degree of inconvenience or risk involved. All that is part of the point of the parable. However, it could let the listeners off the hook because they're thinking, heck, if a Samaritan can do it, so can I. My neighbor is anyone who needs me. Great, I get that. But it gets worse. It gets more outrageous. Jesus had that other point, one that we still tend to ignore. Remember, the original question that started all this was not, whom should I help? It was, who is my neighbor? Who am I supposed to love as I love myself? With whom were Jesus' listeners identifying? Some with the priest, maybe, some with the Levite. But mostly they were identifying with the victim in the ditch who was saved by the despised dog of Samaria. So if you're the man in the ditch, and we all are, folks, that's part of what Jesus was saying, then your neighbor is the Samaritan. Your neighbor, whom you are supposed to love, or at least treat lovingly, is not only the one who needs you, your neighbor is also the one whom you most despise. I would have to rescue Ted Cruz. (laughs) Now, a very quick trip through the story of the prodigal son. Again, consider how it sounded to his listeners. We start out with a smart-mouthed kid who says to his dad, Dad, you've lived too long, and I'm tired of waiting for your money, so give me my share now. Now, that sort of filial impatience didn't go over any better in Judea 2,000 years ago than it would go over with people today. The young man leaves town. Well, he'd have to after behaving like that. He'd be shut out of the community. He couldn't sell his share of the estate locally because no one would buy it, knowing his father was still alive. He had to go abroad to liquidate his assets because only ignorant infidel foreigners would pay for the rights to that property. He has a great time. He spends all the money, and then famine hits, and he has nothing. No money, no friends. No one will even give him a crust of bread. He is, after all, a man who, in effect, killed his father by demanding his inheritance while his father still lived. He winds up slopping pigs, working with the most unclean of creatures, and now he himself is ritually dead, impure at a level no amount of prayer or sacrifice can remedy. It occurs to him that his father's farmhands are doing a whole lot better than he is right now, so he decides he will go home, he'll make humble noises to his father, and see if he can't at least get regular meals going again. So he heads for the old homestead, not really too optimistic. And his father, seeing him approach, runs to greet him. That is appalling to the audience. Because in that culture, no father should ever run toward his child. That's humiliating. The son should run to the father. The lesser runs 
The superior stands and waits. And the kid doesn't have time to offer his father a deal. He never does get to ask to be allowed to be a servant. The only part of his rehearsed speech he gets to deliver is that, I have sinned and I am not worthy to be your son part. But you get the feeling he really didn't even have to say that. Jesus' listeners are shaking their heads at this. You'd have a hard time being less worthy than this young man. But what is wrong with this father letting this rotten excuse for his son come back? And not just welcoming him, but celebrating him with a robe, the sign of dignity, a ring, the sign of authority, new sandals, the sign of return to his full status as a son of the household. The prodigal son has broken God's laws, and now the father has broken them too, because this kid is dead, legally, ritually dead. The older son is not at all impressed. Not very polite in his complaints either. He speaks disrespectfully to his father. The traditional English version begins low, which is better translated as, now look here, buddy. And then complains to his father about this son of yours. To which the father responds, not harshly, but saying, my child. The term in the oldest Greek text is more correctly interpreted as my child than as my son saying, you are always with me and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to make merry and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. And once again, Jesus has told an outrageous story, forcing his hearers to consider the possibility that God cared far less about laws than about compassion forgiveness, and love, even in the face of incredible human stupidity. The father loves both of his children, and that love is not negated by the foolishness of one or the disrespect and anger of the other. The stories of the Good Samaritan and the prodigal son go against many of our own deepest and basest instincts, and Jesus knew that. What he also knew was that we are capable of moving beyond those limitations of our self-righteousness, of our cultural pieties, our stubborn refusal to recognize our neighbor and to welcome our imperfect brothers and sisters back into our own imperfect hearts. Jesus wanted his hearers to know that they were each of them, each of us, all of the characters in all of the parables, the prodigal and the brother, the priest and the Levite, the victim and the Samaritan, and the loving father, the embodiment of the divine, caring more about persons than about theological correctness or ritual purity. The God of Jesus cares about every person, no exceptions. And if we are serious about pursuing what is good, so should we. It's as simple and as outrageous as that. Our chalice has been extinguished, but its flame burns within each of your hearts. Take that flame out into the world that needs you. Go in hope, go in faith, go in love, go and be peace. Blessed be, and amen.